as Andy just shared with us, our second scripture reading comes from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Since in the kingdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Amen. This week, as I was preparing for today's sermon, I read several commentaries and articles and blogs. One of the blogs I read was one I read every once in a while by a Presbyterian pastor who usually has some humorous notes about the week's lectionary scriptures. It turns out he had worked on a sermon from our passage in 1 Corinthians a few years ago and added his two cents. He wrote, with all this crosstalk this week, an Episcopalian colleague of mine have something to add to the story. The cross that sat behind our communion table at the center of the sanctuary was stolen several years ago, he wrote. It was a beautiful Celtic cross that came from the island of Iona in Scotland. It was a gift to the church from the youth group in 1954 to put in the then brand new sanctuary. And six years ago, someone walked into our sacred worship space and walked out with the cross. They didn't take the sound system. They didn't take the sterling silver communion ware. They took the cross. And we haven't seen hide nor hair of it since. It was a Friday afternoon when it became apparent to us that the cross was actually gone, not just off being polished somewhere. It was gone. The church staff and I realized very quickly that it was going to look a little strange when we celebrated communion that Sunday morning to have a big empty space in the chancel where the cross used to be, so we had to come up with a plan. So I called my friend up the street, the priest at the Episcopal Church, to ask if by chance they had a spare cross we could borrow until we could figure out what we were going to do. As it turns out, they had a gold cross that that would be just perfect that sat in their chapel on the side of their sanctuary. My friend, of course, was happy to share His only caveat was that the cross had to be returned to the church every Thursday by 11.45 a.m. for the noontime communion service. No problem, right? But of course, there was a problem. 
Here's what happened next, according to the Episcopal priest. Presbyterians, he says, they're organized, they're prompt, and often guilt-ridden. So we Episcopalians figured we were safe. But a couple of weeks into the deal, 11.45 a.m. on Thursday rolled around, and of course, no cross. We called the Presbyterians, and whoever answered the phone over there had never even heard of our cross. I heard Judy, our parish administrator, saying, well, it's pretty big, it's gold, what can I say, it's a cross. About that time, the other phone line rings, so I pick it up, and it's the pastor of said Presbyterian church who's cruising around in his car and nonchalantly asks if I wanted to get some lunch. I snap back, I don't want lunch, I want our cross back. There was dead silence on the line. Then the Episcopal priest says, I heard an audible gulp. It just kills Presbyterians to goof up. (laughs) Over the line came a strangled voice. Okay, I'm making a U-turn right now. It got there, the Presbyterian minister says. It got there with even minutes to spare, and we, but we've been on our toes ever since. Why all this fuss about the cross? Because it's important, that's why. No, important probably isn't the right word. Essential is the right word. As we discussed in last week's sermon, you cannot have church without the cross. You cannot have the Christian life without the cross. If you want to become my followers, Jesus told us last week, deny yourselves, take up the cross, and follow me. It's an essential tool for the journey. And it's quite literally the centerpiece of our worship. Whether you're in the chapel or here in the sanctuary, it's at the center, front and center. It's central to our worship and it's central to our reality. It's the foundation for everything we do as a community of faith. And the rest of the world thinks we're nuts. Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, Paul says. But we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Paul knew exactly what the problem was in the first century. It wasn't that Greeks had their plethora of other gods that they wanted to worship. The Greek culture in Paul's day had no objection to the concept of monotheism. Plato himself had taught that there was one absolute good, that is, one God. In fact, the Greeks kind of liked the idea. Greek philosophers reasoned that if there was one good, that is one God, that God must be perfect. God must need nothing. God must want nothing. It's very logical. There's even a word for it in Greek, apathia. It's where we get our word apathy. Dispassionate removed, detached, indifferent to the distractions of the world. Apathia referred to the absolute metaphysical perfection of God. But we preach Christ crucified, Paul says. And that was the problem. That sounded like foolishness to Greek thinkers who wanted a perfect God who transcends human life, a God whose hands never got dirtied with the messiness and pain and suffering of everyday existence. 
The alternative view of God was expressed by some of the Jews of Paul's day. Don't picture the Judeo-Christian God of the Old Old Testament, the God that we worship. This group that I'm talking about was a sort of militant strain of Judaism, which frankly had about as much to do with the message of the loving God of the Old Testament as Muslim fundamentalists have to do with the peaceful, generous, charitable messages of Islam. But in Paul's day, the first century, the Hebrew people had been through close to 300 years of militant defeat, oppression, and subjugation at the hands of the Roman Empire. What began to develop among some of the Jews was a theology that understood God and God's coming Messiah in powerful, militant, dominant terms. They began to believe that God was coming to clean house, to drive out the oppressors and to destroy the enemies and restore the throne of King David. God's Messiah would reign, truly reign, in place of Caesar. He would be literally the king of the Jews. And so for them, Christ crucified was indeed a stumbling block. A crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. It was an insult. A suffering God was an oxymoron. God doesn't suffer. For the message about the cross is foolishness. A stumbling block. But God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Christian faith is not about a God who's perfect the way the Greek philosophers wanted not powerful the way that the Jewish extremists wanted. No, instead, Christian faith is about a God who's walked a mile in our shoes, a God who has wants and desires, a God who laughs and weeps, who rejoices and grieves, a God capable of anger and remorse and profound love, a God who, for the sake of love, suffers, a God who, for our sake, suffers and dies. It's not a message that PR firms like because when you extend it to its logical conclusion that if God suffers, then we might be expected to do the same. When you take, when you take it to that conclusion, it runs counter to all human wisdom about what it takes to make it in this world. So instead, we in the church often try to soft pedal the news. We turn sanctuaries into theaters and worship into entertainment. We try to convince ourselves that God is in the business of making us healthy and wealthy and wise. When the God's honest truth is, it's nothing even close. God is not in the business of making us comfortable. God is in the business of raising the dead. I suppose that we, and by we, I mean the church, I suppose that we suppose that by giving people what they want, we will once again fill the pews and restore the, restore the church to its former glory. The wisdom of the world says that people are looking for self-actualization, for comfort, for health, for ways to cope, for success and good relationships and fulfillment. And so preachers, by and large, and I include myself in this category all too often, Preachers get sucked into telling people exactly what they want to hear so that worship becomes tame 
and predictable and people get self-satisfied and complacent. Just ask any teenager and they'll tell you exactly what's wrong with the church. What they'll tell you is that it's just flat out, what? Boring. Peter Gomes, who you've heard me mention before, taught ethics on the faculty at Harvard. He said, American culture has produced the richest, most indulgent society in history, putting ancient Rome and the 18th century France to shame. But in the land whose constitution guarantees the pursuit of happiness, Gomes writes, we seem terribly unhappy. His own experience with the young people he taught was that our consumerist Midas touch has left them empty and they're looking for something so much more. Kenda Creasy Dean, who is the professor of youth, church, and culture at Princeton Seminary and was one of my professors, told our classes over and over and over again, youth and adults live every single day trying to fill the God-shaped hole within them with whatever the world has to offer. We, the church, need to give them something worth living for and maybe more importantly, something worth dying for. You've probably heard of George Barna. He founded the huge research group that studies trends in American Christianity. And just a few years ago, the Barna group started to seriously study what happens to people who drop out of church. The common misconception, the study says, is that people are disengaging from God when they leave the local church. And certainly the study found that some people leave the church and fall away from God altogether. But, Barna says, there's a much larger segment of Americans who are currently leaving churches because they want more of God in their life, but cannot get what they need from the church. They've decided to get serious about their faith by leaving church and piecing together a faith that means something, a faith that demands something. Instead of going to church, they've chosen to be the church in a way that looks a lot like the church did in the book of Acts. Are you kidding me? People are leaving the church because they want more of God than the church is offering? It sounds to me like we're doing something seriously wrong. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's a difficult lesson for us Presbyterians to learn because as the Episcopalian priest I quoted earlier points out, we're organized, we're prompt, and we're guilt-ridden. Foolishness is not a character trait we aspire to. And as you've heard me joke countless times, we prefer things done decently and in order. About 20 years ago at the PCUSA's General Assembly in Denver, one of the speakers who addressed the assembly was former Senator Paul Simon of Illinois. You might remember Paul Simon as the little guy with the trademark bow ties who made a brief run for the president's presidency in 1988. He was also a devout Christian, the son of a Lutheran missionary, and was widely considered to be one of the most decent human beings ever to grace the halls of the United States Senate. When Simon spoke to the General Assembly, his topic was poverty, world hunger, 
and what we as a nation and as churches are doing about it, or more accurately, what we're not doing about it. He pointed out that of the 22 wealthiest industrialized nations in the world, the United States is first in wealth and 22nd, dead last, in terms of aid to combat hunger, poverty, and homelessness. And he challenged the church. He told that group of gathered Presbyterians, no one reads the Presbyterian Book of Order and decides to become a Presbyterian. People are attracted to Christianity, he said, because of the quality of the life the church lives and the compassion and generosity and love shown to the world. And in a world where GNPs overshadow TLCs, where the size of your portfolio matters more than the size of your heart, all of that sounds like foolishness. Frederick Buechner tells the story that in 1831, the Congregational Church in Rupert, Vermont, added a new steeple with a bell in it. And once it was set in place and painted, an extraordinary event occurred. When the steeple was added, the church history reads, one agile Lyman Woodard stood on his head in the belfry with his feet pointed towards heaven. Frederick Buechner writes that this is the only thing anyone's ever found written about Lyman Woodard, that he stood on his head in the belfry of the Congregational Church in Rupert, Vermont, with his feet pointed towards heaven. It was foolishness, a foolish thing to do, Buechner writes. It ran counter to all the standards of practicality and prudence, especially New England practicality and prudence. It took that whole idea that you're supposed to be nothing but solemn and well-behaved in church and stood it on its head, just like Lyman himself stood on his. But if the cross is God's idea of power and wisdom and strength, then maybe it makes sense. Maybe it makes sense in God's upside-down kingdom where losing becomes finding and crying becomes laughing, where the last become first and the weak become strong. Maybe it makes sense in a kingdom where life doesn't end in death, but death comes to an end in life. Maybe it makes sense in God's upside-down kingdom where most everything looks a little bit foolish. And maybe, just maybe, by the grace of God, we can look that foolish too. Amen.
Let us turn to God in prayer. O God, as we continue walking in this season of Lent, we are faced with the chaos and desolation, even the foolishness of going into the darkness. We remember how your son Jesus entered into the wilderness alone. Yet you never allow us to travel alone when we ourselves wander into the depths of darkness. You are with us even when we cannot discern it. Hear us as we pray at this time, prayers that groan in our souls and through our bodies, bodies that are thirsty and longing for your living water, prayers that seek patience and perseverance as we travel in this Linton wilderness, not empty words or shallow fixes that only preserve our brokenness, but prayers that remind us that you stand in the desolation with us and weep at loss and suffering and all that it brings. And so we pray for your creation, for the people of this world, and the willingness to share another's darkness, that maybe, just maybe, we might feel our humanity intertwined with each other. O oh God, in places of conflict, where violence and darkness are always present, we pray that the light and power of your presence might bring new life, transformation, that you might break open the tomb of death and reveal the foolishness of the cross and new life. We pray for those who can only long for the dream of peace and justice, for those whose lives have been upended and feel lost in pits of despair, especially for those in Gaza, Israel, Ukraine, Sudan, and other war-torn places. We pray for ourselves, for our communities, homes, and for our relationships, especially those defined by suffering, by injustice, poverty, and death. We pray for systems and structures, those powers that forget too many people. And we ask that you would disrupt them and give us new life-giving paths. Oh God, there are many in this world who suffer in body, mind, or spirit. Many that know pain, that long for wholeness and wellness. So we lift up those, perhaps even ourselves, as we pray for those who are ill. We lift up those known to us, remembering Margaret McKinnon. We give thanks for the lives of those that have gone before us, remembering Bill Greer and Libba Wall, giving thanks for these servants' lives and asking for comfort for their loved ones. God, may we hold the uneasiness of this Lenten season boldly. Allow us to examine ourselves and seek repentance and healing. May we anticipate the light of Easter that is coming, but first help us sit in the darkness. Allow us to confront the brokenness within ourselves, the temptations, the sin, the ways in which we seek harm and death over life and abundance. 
May we recognize who we have become, but may we also remember that our identity rests in you and not the darkness of this world. Hear us, O God, as we pray with the world and with each other. Hear our prayers that we offer now in silence. And hear now that prayer that your son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Having heard the word read and proclaimed, let us now respond through our tithes and our offerings. I invite you to give generously.